You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Today's episode was a milestone for a couple of reasons. First, we did a live podcast with celebrated authors Catherine Hernandez and Eva Crocker, but it's also our 60th episode, so we have a lot to celebrate. Sidebar, my co-producer, is also celebrating having his podcast, The Insomnia Project, shortlisted for this year's Canadian Podcast Awards. Now, doing this live episode took support from various quarters. So, straight up, I'd like to thank Chris Dorado. He's an author, but also the director of The Violet Hour and one of the sponsors of the live podcast, who also provided a territorial acknowledgement and introduced the speakers on the day that we did the live podcast. But I'd also like to acknowledge the organizers of the Read Quebec Book Fair, who located the venue for this particular podcast at the Desev Cinema at Concordia University in Chichogue. They were supported by the Association for English Language Publishers of Quebec, and the three organizers include Rebecca West, Alex Swinney, and Elise Moser. They were superbly professional, and I'm very grateful to them. And one final shout-out to Stephen Burgess, the audio-visual technician who brilliantly managed all of the technical features of the event. Thank you, Stephen. Then there were the two authors who were interviewed for this episode. The first, as I say, was Catherine Hernandez, who is an award-winning author and screenwriter. She's a proud queer woman who is of Filipino, Spanish, Chinese, and Indian descent and married into the Navajo Nation. Her first novel, Scarborough, won the Jim Wong Chu Award and was a finalist for several awards, including Canada Reads in 2022. We speak about this book, but also her second novel, Crosshairs, which was shortlisted for the Toronto Book Award and made the CBC's Best Canadian Fiction and Now Magazine's 10 Best Books, Indigo Best Book, and the NBC 20 Best LGBTQ Books list of 2020. Then we also spoke about her most recent novel, The Story of Us, which was published this year by HarperCollins and was an instant bestseller. The second author was Eva Crocker, who grew up in Newfoundland and currently resides in Chichoge or Montreal. Her new book is Back in the Land of the Living. Her debut novel, All I Ask, was longlisted for the 2020 Giller Prize and won the 2020 BMO Winterset Award. Her short story collection, Barreling Forward, was shortlisted for the Dane Ogilvie Prize for Emerging LGBTQS2 Writers and won the Alistair MacLeod Award for Short Fiction and the CAA Emerging Authors Award. She's currently a doctoral candidate at Concordia University's Interdisciplinary Humanities Program. So here it is, the live episode and our 60th one, my interview with Catherine Hernandez and Eva Crocker. Thank you. 
Thank you, Chris. I am indeed Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I'd like to begin our discussion today with a question related to Scarborough, especially since there's a film screening today after the event is over. But before I even launch into the questions, I want to do one more thing, and that is to acknowledge the fact that I'm having this conversation in a live setting with people in front of me when I'm usually in a closet with my cats. <laughs> I'm honored that this is also our 60th episode that we're celebrating together, so this will be the 60th episode that will go live. Thank you so much. So let's begin with your breakout novel, Scarborough. When you first submitted the final draft to your editor, you slid it across a desk or pressed send on the computer, what was the feeling like? What did you envision would happen? Oh my goodness. I certainly did not think that it would have the reach that it had. When it first came out, I do remember that uh, okay, so well, coming from theater, what I'm used to in theater is that you would get press before the show starts because you're wanting as many bums as possible in that theater. So you have pre-press. And there was zero press at all about the book because nobody knew who I was. <laughs> and I remember the the publication date coming and going <laughs> and me thinking that's okay I finished a book I accomplished this thing that's all right I was getting a little teary-eyed thinking that's all right I mean in theater you're lucky if you know you have a, a couple hundred people watch your show for your one week uh <laughs> your one week uh run and you're happy if uh less than half of those people are friends and family right <laughs> and so it was uh I would just wasn't expecting much. And then actually I was in Montreal when for my first festival when the first review came in. And actually it was the first time I met Chris actually. Oh. Um yeah, we uh I remember the first review came in and I was like, "Wait, it's a good review." <laughs> and then another one came in the day after and I thought, "Oh, people like it. Okay." And I certainly thought back in 2017, that's it, great. I have a few great reviews, wonderful. I had no idea what the future of it was going to be, that it was going to impact so many people, that it was going to become required reading for uh, many different educators across the country, mm -hmm. become a film and all these things. Uh, and so I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful uh, that it's it's come as far. And, and funny enough, it was at that festival, I remember there was a bookseller there who didn't know who I was mm -hmm. and I said because I heard one of the best ways you can get your books to be sold was to sign it even though nobody knew who the heck I was <laughs> I was like I'll just sign all your stock like, where's your stock of my book I'll sign it and he says well you know are you here for the are you here for the book festival I said yes he said well if you're an emerging writer don't give up I said okay he said because then one day you might get a book published. I said, well, this is my book. I, <laughs> I wrote a book. And he's like, but don't give up, young lady. Don't give up. One day, one day you can see your name on a book. I'm like, really? Because this is my name on this book. He, I don't know if it was just not clocking in that I was the author of the book. I started signing. He's like, why are you signing this book? I said, sir, this is my book. I had to, he was not cluing in that it was my book. 
So to go from that to like now having some kind of renown, it feels like very, it feels uh, very satisfying. I, I, I feel very, really proud of myself and also just really thankful for the audiences for being so open to this, this uh, to, to my work. Yeah. Well, here we are, several books yes. later, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's, I think this is my name. Yes. Honest book. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely is. Yes. So we, here we are, several books later, with the story of us now. Yeah. You have not just the story of us, but also Scarborough, in which books are told from the point of view of children. Why do you choose that? Well, humans, in the first two years of their life, learn most of what they need to know in order to survive, right? And so I understood with that kind of speed, with how children are able to assess who's, who's safe, who's not safe, where do I get the things that I need, et cetera, et cetera, right? That if I wanted the readers to be able to assess those things quickly, it could be done through the point of view of a child. Mm. So that, that's why. And, and also, um, there's an honesty with how children speak. Uh, having been a caregiver for many years uh, and, and, and an educator for many years is that uh, the way that children speak, it really forces you as a writer to simply just put it down onto the page and don't let your ego get in the way because as soon as you do that, a child doesn't sound like a child. It sounds like an adult pretending to be a child. Hmm. Yeah. So Scarborough in particular unfolds not just from the point of view of children, but multiple viewpoints. Why opt for that strategy? What's at stake in doing that? I wanted to, people to understand the way that Scarborough feels. You know, so if, just Mm-mm. in case you don't know what Scarborough is, it's like it's the east end of Toronto. It used to be its own city in, before uh, Toronto was amalgamated, and it because of that it does definitely feel like its own city still. And it's not, the because uh, I remember Arsenal Pulp Press said, you need to get mm. used to how you're going to describe Scarborough. And I thought about that for a while, and I thought, well, it's not like as if we're, you know, we're, we don't have a really cool cred, like, you know, like <laughs> Compton or the Bronx or whatever, right? It's just like, we're just tacky, very tacky people. A lot of that's because, you know, we're in the east end of Toronto and we're close to a nuclear power plant. And because we're close to a nuclear power plant, it means that the people who could people could afford to buy homes there and those people were racialized or poor. Mm. And because of that, it means that our architecture is really ugly. <laughs> and it's um and it's because of it not being grand and beautiful, it means that what what makes it special is the connection between us. So you have this very much like the relationships between us all are, are very, very, very special. And so throughout the day, when you're going to the grocery store or whatever, like you, you have to allot yourself another like half an hour to gossip with people, you know, to, to talk about your neighbors or whatever, right? You need to, to allot that time to w- w- in any of your daily tasks. So, the way that the book is set up so that it's like as if you're walking down the street and you hear one story from one person, one mm. story from another person and another story and another story. Because that 
I wanted people to understand the landscape of it. And what's so interesting is that when people from Scarborough read it, they go, that's exactly what it's like. Mm -mm. You're hearing all these different perspectives all the time. And that completely made sense to them. I'm so glad that they felt it too. Yeah. We're going to be returning a little bit later in the discussion to geography. And we'll talk again about Scarborough, but for what it's worth, you were describing it as ugly and lacking in cool cred. I think you've actually made it <laughs> beautiful and you've given it cool cred. Yeah. Just so that you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One more question about perspective. So the narrative point of view in the story of us and in Crosshairs invites the reader into a particular position, one that is intimate and private. So we're addressed almost as if we were characters and part of the story. Do you mind if I read a passage from the story of us as an example? So this is the passage. Hello? Hi, Liz, can you hear me? Can you see me if you look into my eyes? See the spirit in this infant body? I know you're distracted by my sweet smell and the plump of my cheeks. If I wasn't swaddled this tightly, I would try and wave, get your attention, or maybe that would make things worse. Then you might be distracted by my advanced motor skills. I want to sigh in in frustration, but even sighing has made you all coo at me before. And really, what I need from you is your focus. You, more than anyone. What's the strategy or design in including the you in this way? So in theater, oftentimes as practitioners, we are trying to name who the audience is in order for us to understand why is it that the story is happening at this moment. So why this? Why now? Mm. And so I do the same thing writing in in books is that I, I try to name who the audience is for people to understand why is this book happening in this moment for the reader. And uh, in this particular case, uh, because the the book, the story of us is about a uh, Philippinex woman who comes to Canada under the live-in caregiver uh, program and becomes the personal support worker for an elderly woman by the name of Liz. This entire friendship that unfolds between them is told through the eyes of MG's newborn baby. Uh, And you're wondering why. Why is it that this newborn baby has so much to say? And, uh, And you realize by the end, like what this entire message has been and why this entire epic tale has been told. Um, and it really is about family, like chosen family. Yeah. We're going to also return yeah. to that, too. I love that. <laughs> yeah. You have these exquisite um, scenes in which language is very closely tied to redemption. So there are examples in Crosshairs. I'm thinking of the moment. I can't remember the names of the characters now, but there's a mother figure who weeps and tells her son that she loves him. She had to learn a kind of language in order to break through and connect with her son. That's one instance. It also happens in Scarborough. I'm thinking of the moment when the teacher sits and tries to teach. Again, uh, uh, pardon me, I've forgotten sure. the young, young girl's name. Laura, I think. Laura, yeah. Laura. Yeah. She's trying to teach Laura happy, how to, how to articulate particular words. Yes. So, but all of all of these, the one that really struck me, they all do, but the one I that brought me to tears is the one in the story of us, although it also happened in Scarborough, in which the main character, MG, learns to adopt not exactly a language, but the mannerisms and the, la- the diction of Jane, that is the former friend of Liz, 
who's no longer present. So there are moments when Liz will turn to MG and because Liz is suffering from Alzheimer's, doesn't realize that MG is not Jane's best friend, uh, Liz's best friend, Jane. And so what MG does is transforms herself into Jane using a kind of language and so forth. It's a key moment of transformation when in effect, MG learns to become Liz's best friend. That's the point where I began to weep and I realized that's the role that she takes on and then really becomes that. How do you see language being used to affect transformation? Well, yeah, in that moment with MG is that it's basically anybody who has done work taking care of elders with dementia is that w what we understand now is that there's really no point in arguing with someone who has dementia saying, well, actually, don't you know that it's 2023 <laughs> and I'm not Jessica, I'm Catherine. There's no point in arguing. You actually just have to go along with whatever the person is saying because they're actually searching your face to see if they're making sense. And they want to make sense. They want to be able to express themselves. They want to be able to reminisce. They, uh, you know, and uh, they don't want to feel like as if they're lost and they're looking at you as, as some kind of anchor. And so with with MG, she understands her role as a personal support worker is to not fight her and instead take on the role of who Liz thinks she is, which is her best friend, and and just goes along with it. And, and in my research, that definitely was something that caregivers told me a lot, is that taking care of the elderly, it is that. It's a lot of theater. And, and, and when they realized it's not a ruse, it's, it's, and you're not being dishonest to someone, you're actually allowing them to just be them. I found that very profound, uh, uh, like how we're going to go along with someone's realities just so that they can feel comfortable, especially when they're already experiencing so much fear in the world, in a, in a world that's, that's becoming increasingly uh, unfamiliar. Uh, and I thought, oh, isn't that so beautiful, that that relationship that someone has? So, so MG does that. She takes on that reality so that Liz feels less afraid. And so I don't know if that necessarily answers your question, hmm. but uh, because I think that that's very specific to this point, like the reason as to why MG does it, but I don't necessarily know if it was, it's like uh, for me, you know, when I'm telling a story, I don't necessarily think what is my intention with this particular element and, and all that. Like I, I just, I just try to tell a story. Yeah. And the story is beautiful. Yeah. The The effect for me is that in performing her best friend, she actually becomes her best friend. Yes. It's such a beautiful, it's a beautiful relationship that I really deeply appreciate yes. it. Uh, the second, yeah. I'll have a follow-up question, so it'll, sure. it'll, you can unpack it a little bit. I love that redemptive moment between the two when MG is working past her own prejudices and trying to navigate herself in this world in which she feels disoriented for all kinds of reasons. So they build, I thought, this friendship, which wasn't automatic. It happens between MG, who's a Philippinex woman, and a trans woman, and they're coming from completely different social locations. So why choose these two characters to tell the story? 
Uh, yeah, so to yeah to cl- clarify is that MG, she's coming from the Philippines, and she is a cisgender Philippine person. And Liz is a transgender elder. So these two women are crossing each other's path at this like really important moment where Liz is basically losing all of her memories, and MG is there to really be her anchor. Both of them actually are each other's anchor, MG being new to Canada and Liz being new to this world of dementia. And I, I wanted I, I wanted this connection to happen because I wanted to be honest, being a cisgender person and being part of the queer community, having many trans folks as my chosen family, is that I wanted to show what it is to have, to be really new at allyship and for it to show how clumsy it is that mm-hmm. you make mistakes and you see MG coming from this very conservative background, d- not really believing in the um, identity of Liz, thinking that Liz is, mm-hmm. is just pretending to be a woman mm-hmm. until finally one of Liz's chosen family, Ash, sits her down and says, I want you to understand that when someone's trans, they're not pretending. Liz is a woman. She is a woman. And she's also an extraordinary woman who actually taught me who I am. And I need you to be there for her. You need to show up for her and you need to learn how to be a better ally to her. And it's a tough conversation. And yet there's something about that conversation that really has MG step up to the plate and really understand what it means to be a caregiver. Mm. And because that's what it's like when you're dealing with someone with, I'm sure that lots of people in this audience probably know what it's like mm-hmm. t- when you have to advocate for someone who has dementia or has any kind of disability is that you really have to look within and say like, where are my shortcomings and how can I be better for this person if I'm stronger in myself? And that's what that's what MG does. Yeah. And beautifully so. Thank you. We're going to shift gears now a little hey. bit. <laughs> the novel that was published before The Story of Us, Crosshairs, yes. is a dystopian novel. What's most disturbing for me about Crosshairs is how you don't let your readers in Canada get away with any dismissive hand-waving that sometimes goes on about tangible racism or homophobia. Well, that would never happen here. Oh, it does happen <laughs> here. <laughs> and it's very clear in the novel that it not only could happen, it has happened here. Mm-hmm. So what work does the dystopian novel genre do specifically? What's its objective? Why adopt this form? It's so interesting because I didn't really think about it much about what the form is. And I want to I want to acknowledge that we're having this discussion right now. We're at this event when we understand that at two o'clock at Place des Arts, there's going to be uh, a demonstration against genocide in Palestine. And uh, it's with such a heavy heart um, sitting here because it's so important. Storytelling is so, so important in this day and age, especially because of the fact that I work in television and film, uh, working also in the publishing industry, is that there are so many storytellers right now that are being censored to not speak against genocide. And I, I sit here lo- thinking about how many times I've received uh, direct messages 
saying, how did you know that this was going to happen, that the world was going to look like this? How did you know? Because you have to understand that this was published, uh, so Crosshairs was published in 2020. The exact date was uh, September something, 2020. I remember when we were going through final edits, all of a sudden the pandemic broke. Mm. And then you were starting to see this, like, the scrambling towards resources. And there were obviously conflicts that, that lasted generations before this book was published. But in the States, it was published in December. And I started getting all of these emails from people after January 6th saying, how did you know? Mm. How did you know? And I want to say, just like what Taya Lim said about her book, when you write a dystopian novel, you never say, ha-ha, see, <laughs> I said it, I'm a winner. You never say that. You say, I am so sorry, but it's true. I'm so sorry, but it's true. There are, are so many folks from the QT BIPOC community who have reached out to me saying, I keep on thinking about your book as I'm scrolling through mm. my phone, watching horror after horror unfold. And I can't tell you how much pressure I received as it was being published in the United States saying, what if you were to just not making it in Canada? What if you were to set it not in Canada, but like just in sort of like this, you can make up a name for a location. You can make up a name for this. And I said, absolutely not. I need people to understand that genocide is very active in Canada, specifically mm. against the indigenous people of Tur Turtle Island. I need people to understand this. Yes. It, it, I'm so glad it did because when we, I started doing events in the United States, people had no idea about the unmarked graves being found in, at residential schools here. They didn't even know about the residential school system in the United States. They call it a boarding school system in the United States. And so it just like things like that, right, where you realize it is very important to call it what it is, that it takes place in Toronto, that there is a pilot program in which people from the QT BIPOC disabled and elderly population are put into workhouses. It's after, it's after financial collapse and environmental collapse. And it, people just, just didn't, I, I think people couldn't fathom that Canada could be so heinous. And it's like, well, it, it already has it been. Already has. It already has. Exactly. It, that's what it's founded on. Right. So it, it was, and uh, what I didn't see happening I because uh, I, I remember being prepared because my, my my husband is a, a therapist he they were preparing me about like well how do I deal with conflict with people in the audience if people get violent with me to, like calling out white supremacy so uh, we would practice we would practice these different scenarios and then I was not prepared for people to just say that wouldn't happen mm -hmm. that's that's not what I was prepared for I was not prepared for the critical onslaught of people believing that my book was so outrageous huh. and believing that how outrageous it was was a reflection for the quality of writing. And I found that that was so interesting. I remember my, my husband sitting me down and saying, it's not you, my love. This is an important book. It is an important book, and that's why it's being shut down. And it's so upsetting just because I know it's the truth. And I don't know, you know, to, that's white supremacy is so talented. It's so talented and so skilled at simply unplugging your microphone. And every day 
I see crosshair slowly and slowly becoming true. Mm. Um, and uh, I hope, I was really hoping that I would publish it and people would just say, oh, what a weird work of fiction that was. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's been, it's been a wild ride since 2020, hasn't it? It so, has been. Yeah. Yeah, Catherine, I want to say don't despair of this book because I know, for example, Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, which was read and kind of tossed to yeah. the side. Yeah. People didn't believe that there were... I was like, if yeah. I would... Yeah. <laughs> they didn't believe that those things could happen. Yes. And here we are. People are now turning to The Handmaid's Tale saying, wait, what? Yeah. Okay, so what you've done is to anticipate like yeah. real gifted writers and poets do yes and you've you've reached into the past and represented some things that have already happened and added on by taking elements of our current culture and anticipated this could happen yes. it is happening very much right? so so yeah we're it's uh, you know a lot of people are, um there was one person that told me i need you to think that at some point if we are able to survive generations from now they're gonna look back and say who the hell was a psychic <laughs> but I I always believe that I write what my ancestors tell me to write my ancestors told me to write that to issue everybody a warning and it's been issued I can only just hope that people listen yeah it's a very powerful book, not only for the reader, but uh, clearly for you. Yes. What was it like? You say that you write in response to what your ancestors tell you. So how, how does that process work for you, the research and then that almost intuitive positioning? Well, I, my work, the creation of my work is a decolonized process where I, every day I, I just write down what my ancestors tell me to. And at that time, my ancestors told me, issue them a warning because bad things are coming. And people have to know that they have to change, but not from here up, but from their body. Mm -hmm. And the process was really interesting just because you think that every, all these things falling into place that people would take it seriously. I was given the opportunity to do a TED talk at uh, TED TEDx Toronto in which I talked about embodied allyship and uh, what was so interesting is that you have this wide range of reactions to what I'm saying in that TED Talk. Because, you know, I call out anti-blackness in uh, the Philippinex community. I, I feel really grateful having a lot of people from the black community saying thank you so much for being honest mm. about that. And, and then you have other folks who are saying, I just, I couldn't get past how aggressive you sounded. Wow. <laughs> or I just feel like the next time you deliver the speech because you know i do this as a keynote speech regularly across the country if the next time we do the the keynote speech can you just do it just a little softer huh. can you say it nicer or can you tell me what i did right and i find it so interesting because i'm just like that's a, the a, the knee-jerk reaction is i i want to change but I want you to tell me to change in a nicer way, <laughs> right? We're facing the end of our species and people still want to believe that marketing is part of teaching people how to be more environmentally conscious. Like, I just feel like, how else are we going to tell you? 
how I like how yeah. And I, I I always say when someone comes to me and says, "Can you sign my book?" like and they actually read it, I am always amazed and I always say, "Thank you so much" because I know that it's a hard book. It is mm-hmm. so difficult, mm-hmm. and I. Uh, I get it. I get that it's difficult, but it's not as difficult as actually living through those atrocities. And it was written definitely, you know, like at a time where um, there was this mass flood that happened through Scarborough. There was also, it was in the wake of the Pulse shooting in uh, Florida. And so I understood that there was this wave that was happening, a wave of fascism. And we're seeing that now. It's basically worldwide fascism, right? that uh, mm-hmm. it people weren't taking it seriously. Even like the word fascism, people really have in their mind that it's like something from far, far away in a black and white photographs. Exactly. Right? And not knowing that it's happening. So it, it's just really interesting to me. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I just have to say, like, like my friend said, I just have to, the right people are going to read it. The right people are going to take action when they're ready. I can't, I don't have any control over it. Yeah. You've done your part. Yeah. You've done your part. One, one, one last question before we invite Eva up to the stage, and that is you had just broached the kind of environmental warning that Crosshairs also serves. Yes. You yourself are now practicing on Wild Strawberry Ranch, I think yeah, it is. Yeah, we have a, I have a homestead, 3.7 acres in Napanee, and we've rewilded it. I'm practicing uh, really intense permaculture practices, uh, like for farming, and we're... Homesteading is really great because it means that uh, I'm not the leader of a country. However, the land that I'm on, I I can make it a place in which people are safe and that we're we're basically just we're making sure that we're writing the environment where we are. That's all I can have control over is 3.7 acres. Uh, Yeah, we're capturing our own water. growing as much food as possible i'm obviously just learning but uh having farmers in my my family like i i know that i have it in me and uh very intense composting practices yeah so it it's it's wonderful it's it it it, to me it's such a blessing and and i really thank the land that we're caretaking it in a way that we're in partnership with it could you give everyone the website so they know where to... Sure. So if you go onto my website, uh, com. if you go there, you can find on the menu the Wild Strawberry Homestead information, and it lists everything that we're doing there. We're failing a lot. We're <laughs> learning a lot. Um, and uh, But, uh, I'm a, yeah, I'm a beekeeper now. So, yeah, like all these things. So I, I'm very, very pleased, very thankful for the opportunity to be able to care take the land. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to now ask Eva to join us on the stage and we'll continue the conversation. It's not done yet. Come and join us. <laughs> and while she makes her way up here, you should also, well, I'd like to let you know that you could follow Catherine uh, at Legs from, uh, for, uh, from uh, no, Hernandez. Hernandez, H-E-R. Legs Hernandez. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course, <laughs> I can't read my own writing. <laughs> Okay, both of you, thank you so much. You can also follow Eva at Eva Lazy Vegas. Did I get that right? Great. Okay. So now both of you in your respective novels are concerned with issues related to privacy and secrecy. The lack thereof or the need for privacy, especially where it concerns the lives that have been under oppressive public scrutiny. Catherine, I'm thinking now of the dystopian setting in Crosshairs. Eva, I'm thinking of when the police rummage 
through the computer of the main character in All I Ask. What's the difference between privacy and secrecy? What or why do characters either seek privacy or why are they compelled to be secretive? Either one of you can take it up. Okay, I first wanted to say thank you for, for having me and uh, it's really exciting to get to be here with you, Catherine, because I, I found all of your books really powerful, but I just read the story of us recently and you know, I thought it was this really nuanced and incisive kind of condemnation of the immigration mm -hmm. system here in Canada. But also the moment when I read it, three of my friends were pregnant and had just given birth. So I got to spend time with babies who are in that kind of magical state of having just moved into the world. And I don't know, it's really moving to to read the story from that perspective in that moment. Um, what an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading. Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you for writing. <laughs> um, but all I ask, so I wrote it after this incident that really happened to me in 2017 in St. John's in Newfoundland. The police stormed into my house. And I was there alone. It was like seven in the morning and they told me that I was under arrest for transmission of child pornography which was like a mistake that they had made, like a clerical error. And it was an incident that would have been more dangerous and traumatic if I were not a white cis woman and a citizen. Um, but it was still pretty terrifying. <laughs> and it made me... So the book is kind of a fictional account of the aftermath of that incident where they confiscate the protagonist's computer and go through her things and she's kind of in this limbo of living with knowing that the police are crawling through all of this private material and the police had been monitoring what I was doing on the internet prior to this incident which was just really unsettling to learn and it made me think a lot about privacy and also about our kind of digital mirror image and how much that reflects who we really are and mm -hmm. who has access to that and what does it mean. So yeah, I, I guess that is some of the questions that were on my mind when I was writing about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Catherine. Um, sorry, I was so engrossed. <laughs> 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 no, because, uh, yeah, I mean, like, definitely when it comes to writers and censor censorship as... I just was talking about about expression, especially during this really, really dangerous time, is that I'm often nervous about uh, surveillance. And so I kind of turn it on its head and, you know, being this openly queer couple and, you know, uh, what uh, one of the things I, I, I'm very proud of is the fact that my partner and I were the first queer couple to have an open an open like a, a public wedding on my partner's reservation in uh, Navajo Nation since colonization mm. it's, and it was a queer one so we turn it on its head and say well if you want uh, you know if there's surveillance we want people to see this is what love looks like and it's a very different way of like using the the, the publicness of it all as a tool right 
is that then I don't care. And I've, I've also posed nude for like Now magazine where I'm like, <laughs> just to show you, I really don't care about what you think about my sexuality, right? And so it's it's really interesting because it is, I, it, it, I can imagine it's so unsettling mm -hmm. and I, I can't imagine how, like how you feel like it just, just intensely after all of that, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel fine now. Yeah. <laughs> and, I <find> it <laughs> and I find it, I, I also appreciate that take of taking ownership in a way of uh, laying it all out and yeah. saying you can't take it from me if I am presenting it myself kind of thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And I guess I'm trying to buy time because I'm trying to remember what your <laughs> question is because I was so engrossed <laughs> in what she was saying. But sorry, can, can you Yeah, of course. Uh, so I was concerned with or interested in the dynamic of privacy and secrecy. Okay. So what's the difference between privacy and secrecy and why do characters either seek privacy or why are they compelled to be secretive? Well, with um, Crosshairs, uh, I guess uh, one thing that, the first thing that comes to mind when you're talking about this is that in any resistance movement, mm -hmm. what I find really interesting is the way that people code in order to send information across boundaries and borders. So, uh, and there's a part in the book where they talk about that, where I, I've always found it amazing, where you'll have messages sewn into fabrics, for example, yes. right? Or language, like I know that in, uh, there's uh, indigenous tribes in Guatemala, for example, who did embroidery in order for the children to remember their language, even though the language was policed, right, by the <sighs> Spanish. So you... So that, and that's why if you go to parts of Guatemala is that you still have many communities that are completely fluent in their indigenous language. And some of them, it's the only language they know. They do not know English and they do not know Spanish. And I'm so proud of that because I'm like, mm. that's because in the Philippines culture where a lot of us sort of conceded to uh, English, Spanish, or just like, you know, Tagalog, right? Like m many of us have lost our own our own dialect so there's that like uh, like the entire thing of like the secret code is something that comes to mind when you're talking about this is that mm. how do people communicate certain certain information so in the case of crosshairs is that uh, in my research one person who who was an outreach worker and also person who had experienced homelessness is how uh, there is a code on the streets with regards to where you can find free food where you can find shelter you know, all these things, and there's a certain way that graffiti can tell you certain things, right? And really challenged me to put that into the book to see if I could do it. And I was like, yeah, cool, I'll, I'll try it to see if I can create this code. Uh, so there's that, mm -hmm. and there's also a code in which the allies, white allies, are working alongside the resistance in order to keep people safe. Uh, is that Humans are so smart is that they can figure out a way to have this sort of like undercurrent of language mm. in order to keep each other safe. And if we have that much smarts to keep keep people safe in the, under, in the undercurrent, it means we can be smart enough to keep people safe out in the sunshine, <laughs> is, is, my, is my thing, yeah. <laughs> That's great, thank yeah. you. For both of you, again, the title of Eva's, one of Eva's books is All I Ask. So we could read this in one of two ways. All I ask, meaning this is a very little I ask for. All I'm asking for is this. Mm -hmm. But there's another way you could read that. All I ask. So taking the two meanings, the little or everything, 
apply it first to the story of us and then all I ask and to read what the main characters are asking for. Are they asking for all, a little, or all, like dang it, everything? <laughs> what are they asking for? Uh, I think maybe different things in different moments, like both both those things <laughs> are true of, it's so funny, I'm forgetting the protagonist's name. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that too at festivals where I'm like, you know, the person who, um, I don't know, the one with the bow on her head. The main yes. girl. <laughs> <laughs> She's like really important. Marcy. Yeah. It's Marcy. Um, uh, Stacy, yeah. Oh, Stacy, um, sorry, Marcy's the other novel. <laughs> Thanks, I'm not helping at all. <laughs> I That's love it, I love it. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah, I think she's kind of in s in some moments feeling very trapped and asking little in that she just wants sort of, as we've talked about, privacy and to continue her life without this disruption. And on the other hand, she's really excited about this new romance and falling in love and the world is feeling new and exciting and there is that kind of opening up again. That's all I ask in the in the more generative sense. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Eva. I think, uh, yeah, some reason, there's more like a, tr a transition from one to the other, which is that um, all I ask for is that I can go to another country and earn enough money to send back home to my family. That's mm -hmm. all I ask, right? And then slowly over time realizing once you see MG find her own voice and also find her own pleasure is that realizing that her pleasure has a place in this world. And so I ask for it all. I ask for pleasure, I ask for friendship, I ask for family, I ask for safety, as anybody should have access to. And I want, I really wanted that for MG. Uh, you know, uh, you, do, you don't really think of Filipinas receiving pleasure. It's usually like there's this transactional thing where it's like, if you Google Filipina, you know exactly what you're going to be finding, right? Is that you, instead to have this woman empowered enough to give herself, like literal, give herself like sexual pleasure, also give herself the possibility of having family with Liz and having a child, believing that she can have her own family in Canada and that she has a right to stay. Um, to, she has a right to her rage as well. So... That was really cool. Uh, like I, I loved, I love being able to do that to her because you know when you're a writer, you're like, I can do whatever the heck I want. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna put it into being, right? So yeah, yeah it's cool. Yeah, both of you have these really great moments of description in terms of the the setting. So in back in the land of the living, Marcy, I'm checking with your friend now, <laughs> <laughs> is undergoing a journey that maps details about Montreal, which I absolutely love. The, the references to dollar cinema, which I love. I thought, yes, I recognize that. <laughs> and um, Mount Royal and Value Village, all of it. I loved it. I thought, yes, I recognize where we are. And the same thing with Scarborough, right? And in the story of us and even elements of crosshairs in and around parts of Toronto. How important is place and setting to your respective works? Uh, well, for crosshairs, it was definitely... Uh, way of resisting that Canadian marketing narrative that's like generations long saying that we're such good people 
that we are we're, we're peace loving and when in actual fact it's it's a country that's founded on genocide it was really important for me to to set it in Toronto specifically mm-hmm. and Scarborough the reason why Scarborough was just because it's a it's an often vilified part of Toronto and I wanted to show the with such great compassion the people behind it and the reason why it's so special to me and just like showing like what othered neighborhoods look like mm-hmm. you know that it's actually the people there most likely have a lot of heart and we should see them for who they are first story of us I would say that the place like the way that I describe uh, Manila then Hong Kong and then Toronto it to show the vast difference between locations when someone is part of a forced migration is really important to, to really get the readers to understand what it's like to have to uproot yourself mm-hmm. many times just for the safety of your family so yeah 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 I think place is very inspiring to me I'm from Newfoundland and my first two books are very much about Newfoundland and I feel you know this connection to the landscape and like I'm really have been immersed in the history for so long and I don't feel that same connection to Montreal so yet (laughs) 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 but the project of Back in the Land of the Living was kind of trying to think about how you're sensorily awake in this new place when you move to a new place and so so it is very much about like moving through a city you don't know and what does that feel like that was on my mind a lot Mm. Mm -hmm. how do you want your your readers to feel when they close the last page what's the the takeaway in for example the story of us or back in the land of the living what's the one takeaway that you want your readers to have what's the feeling you want them to have I think, I mean, certainly I wasn't writing it with a, a one singular message that I want people to have at the end. And I appreciate endings that are kind of open-ended because mm. often life doesn't come together with like a bow at the moment that you want it to. Um, and I try to reflect that in, in my endings, which some people really don't like, but <laughs> sticking with it. But I think it, the book does end on this moment of connection and, and coming together um, in spite of feeling lonely um, and kind of beginning to find your people. So maybe that's the feeling that I hope people are sitting with at the end is that mm. that feeling of connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also don't try, when I'm writing, I just know that I'm writing a story, but I try not to have like an intention in mind. I do love... You know when you re- you finished a good book and you hold it in your hands and it feels like as if they're in there? Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel that when you're finished a book and it's like you're holding it and then, you know, you open it and they're like, wah, 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 and then they, you <laughs> shut it and then they're like, so that's like what I want them to feel is that they're sort of inside of there. But other than that, I don't really have that much of intention about like how they're going to feel. If they're going to feel it, they're going to feel it. I don't really have any control over it. Uh, but I, I would like for them to feel like as if they were alive you know yeah excellent yeah before we turn over the discussion to those in the audience do you have questions for each other that you would want to ask well 
I feel like I have so many questions. For you. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, like, has has your writing changed since coming here? Because like the landscape's so different. I, I also love your home province. Like, it's such a beautiful oh. province. So, like, what has it been like? I think I wrote. I also wrote back in the land of the living during the lockdown here in Montreal, mostly, and is interesting i saw claudia day read the other day and she spoke about writing her most recent book also during lockdown and how um you're kind of separated from your usual presentation of self and and social expectations or or she was and i was in that moment i know lots of people were still Mm -hmm. working and out in the world but i think that that was a really different writing experience and maybe that's in there in some ways yeah. Okay. Um, oh, can I ask Catherine? You, you, <laughs> please. you can feel free to do that. Yes. <laughs> I think I'm curious about, I, I found it really interesting what you said about it being important to name Canada um, and the kind of relationship between imagined peoples and worlds and the real world. And how do you, I don't know, how do you meld those two or what's the experience like of that for you? Oh, between like, uh, like for example, in Story of Us where there's like the reality and then the spirit world and stuff like that or? or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm always of the, I'm, a, I'm of the mind that there is no real line mm-hmm. for me. Uh, and that's my belief system. I get it, like that. It might sound a little granola for a lot of people, but like I do feel like their co- spirit is constantly, you know, just to the back of me, guiding me. Mm-hmm. And I feel that for the characters as well. Um, there's going to be like another book coming out next year, which is about uh, what it was like growing up in Scarborough during the time that the Scarborough rapist was at large. And because uh, I was I was ten years old when he began uh, stalking women and children in my neighborhood. And we lived only five minutes away from each other. So that one, definitely, there's like this feeling of spirit behind me during the entire process of that. So I don't see like imaginary worlds or anything. I don't see like really any differentiation. That's just me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know that, you know, people have really different belief systems and and they might like guide them one way or another. But I was having this conversation actually with Zalika Reed Benta about how both of us are very much like guided by ancestors while we're writing. And so it means that the line is always blurred for every, for, ev- for everyone involved, either in our book or just like us in general as, as writers, that the, that veil is so thin for us, you know? But also mm-hmm. for us as readers, I understand exactly what you mean. And, and I think that if our antenna are up, then that becomes the experience for the reader as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it can. Okay. Are there questions from the audience for uh, Catherine and Eva?
just I'm just going to repeat the question just to make sure that it picks up. What was your name? Destiny. Hi, Destiny. So it was about the possibility of David Cheriandi's work in relation to Brother being a, a kind of influence for your own work, Catherine. Yes. Our books actually were released in the same year. And I didn't know about David until I was asked by Quillen Choir to please interview him. And they said, we just think it's going to be funny. One Scarborough Arthur interviewing another. Isn't that fun? <laughs> I said, sure. <laughs> so then I called him up. He's He lives in BC. And I just thought it was going to be funny to say, guess where I'm calling you from? Because I don't, I didn't think that he understood that I lived in Scarborough at that time. And he just said, are you, I don't know, on the street that I grew up on? And I said, well, I don't know. What street did you grow up on? <laughs> he says the street. And I realize his parents lived five doors down from my parents. Oh. And we were like, what are you talking about? And so, um, yeah. And then also the fact that both of our parents would brag about each other's kids being writers, <laughs> but they had no idea. Like, we had never seen each other. So anyway, now I feel like he's like my long lost cousin. We're very much like really, we're very close. And also uh, he jokes around. He's like, I think that my parents would like to trade you, me in for you. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to lie. I think so too. <laughs> I think so too. I think they like me better. Um, but uh, so that's the only, actually I didn't know about him until that time. And what's so great was that, you know, he experienced such amazing success with Brother and it takes place at a very different time. So mine is like 2011 because I wanted it to be just after the uh, market crash. And his is taking place in like late 80s, early 90s. And having, uh, and it's it's such different Scarboroughs because Scarborough has changed so much during that period of time. And it's even changed even now. If you look at Théa Martangy's, oh, uh, Shut Up, You're Pretty. Oh, yeah, that's That right. is very much like a present day Scarborough that is very different from mine. Uh, and then Carrie Ann Leung's is like definitely like early 80s. So you see the gentrification and how different it looks over time. Um, and so what I'm going to say is that I don't, we, I, I don't think we necessarily influenced each other. I would say that all of us who wrote our books around the same time, I really do feel that we were somehow psychically connected. Yeah. And, and also his, 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 the movie for Brother ended up, winning uh, all the sweeping the uh, Canadian Screen Awards one year after ours. So uh, we were just so happy. It was like Scarborough in two years in a row. <laughs> so it's really good. It's good. <laughs> Other questions from the audience? Rebecca. So Rebecca's question was, what was it like in the process of transferring the novel Scarborough onto the screen? Uh, so a few filmmakers contacted me saying, uh, I'd, I'm interested in optioning it. And they sent me their reel. And I looked at their reel. It was so polished. So really talented filmmakers, but so polished. And I thought, this is not the Scarborough I know. I need, I think I need, want it to look like a documentary, but mm -hmm. with a written script, right? Like a fiction script, but looking like a documentary. And so then I contacted 
my colleagues who I've worked with in the past and their documentary filmmakers, Shasha Nakai and Rich Williamson from Crompy Films. I said, is that even done? Like where you can make it look like a documentary and it has a script. And at that time, films like Nomad Land, for example, it didn't exist yet, right? And they were like, maybe, I don't know. And they hadn't done a fiction film yet. And so they were like, mm, let's just try. Two weeks from now, there's a there's a, a, a funding grant deadline do you think you can maybe make like a little blurb for it? And I said, okay, sure. So t- I took two weeks to, and then I wrote the entire screenplay. I was like, might as well, right? Just try mm. it. I, just want, I don't <laughs> even know how to do it. I looked at Google images. I had no idea how to format a script. So I looked at Google images. I had, I didn't have final draft at that time, which is the software. So I just used my tab button. And um, I mean, I know, okay, I know how to write now on a final draft. (laughs) Uh, There are very patient story editors that work with me that have taught me how to to do what I'm doing. And I I really, uh, I really, really appreciate their time. But I uh, I didn't know what I was doing. Because in in theater, if you look at any theater script, there is zero formatting structure. Like you don't even, it looks more like a haiku poem, you know. And so um, I didn't know what I was doing. I just put that in. That ended up being the one that won. I can't believe it, <laughs> but we, it was because of the fact that Shasha and Rich, they weren't from the future film, like fiction world. They had no idea. So they didn't judge me. I didn't judge them. Like we were just trying things out. And that goes to show you how messed up that industry is <laughs> because it's like, if people are like, oh, this is the way things are done. It's only done this way. If we were to listen to that garbage of there's a way of telling a story in a film this is how you do it. This is the way that a script looks. Blah, blah, blah. Is that we wouldn't have gotten the project started. We would have just been in meetings all day trying to make a story better when in actual fact we were just going from our guts, right? So we, um, yeah, so it ended up that we got the funding uh, and then over the course of a year we shot it and then the pandemic hit. It was a mess. We, when we found out that we got into TIFF, we were still not even finished. We weren't even finished like editing. We, we were like, how are we, we don't even have money to, to promote this. I just scrounged up some money to help out with the promotion. We had no idea it was going to be as successful as it, uh, it became. And I, I'm, I'm just really thankful. But it was like 300 people touched that film uh, from like, you know, mm-hmm. extras, everybody. Like it just everyone just wanted it so badly to be up on that screen. Um, and it just goes to show you how thirsty people from Scarborough were to have their stories be told out in the world. So it was a very beautiful journey. Very beautiful. Amazing. Thank you. Just behind Rebecca. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Other questions in the audience? Michael. So that question was from Michael for both authors, and it is, what do you get from the actor process of writing? The essence of the question. I think different things at different times. Sometimes I feel really inspired, and I'm excited to sit down, and it feels good, and other times it's hard. But I think in the pandemic especially, I shared writing on Zoom with people, um, get together and give feedback on each other's work, and that felt 
so important to me and valuable at that time as a as a way of connecting in this especially vulnerable way and that's a really important part of the process to me so those those are the best moments i think is like getting together with people ideally in person and and sharing a little of what you've written and talking about it um i always feel like refreshed and inspired and uh kind of like joyful after getting to have that experience that's so that is so awesome i love that you did that i'm glad that you did it because i know that a lot of people felt completely dysfunctional during that time and yeah the zoom really helped for some folks yeah that's good um i uh during lockdown what i did to get through it all and to continue writing was to um i just pretended that i was some rich lady in downtown abbey <laughs> i'm like what's the difference between me and some rich lady in downtown abbey sitting in her estate writing to her lovers i'm stuck in my house might as well write so i said like a thousand words a day just do it and then i was able to write two books uh, but I didn't force myself. If I wanted to, like, you know, sit and cry because the world was burning up, like, then I'll just do that too, right? Whatever. Um, but what I get out of writing, for sure, is almost like I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel like if I don't get it out, it hurts. Yeah. Yeah, or sometimes there'll be, like, something circling in my head, and I'm like, I have to get to a computer yes. so that... <laughs> I can see where this is going to go. It'll be just a line, and I know there's more that has to come. Yeah, and, and that's how it's been since I was a kid. Like, when I was a child, I remember it was like any surface I could write something on, I would. And even before I could write, then it was a picture. If it Before it was a picture, it would be like telling somebody or telling it to myself most likely just because I really lived in my own head, um, imagining things. Uh, so it's it's almost like... I remember saying this at the Ottawa Writers Fest, and they all thought it was um, quite uh, rude. I said it's it's kind of like um, like I need to go pee, you know, when you're like I need to go pee, so you go pee. It's the same thing with like writing. It's like I need to write, so I'm gonna write. Like that's how it's like an emergency, and I don't um, I don't think people understand. It's like when you're when you're a writer, it is it's an emergency. And I've actually heard some people who have been political prisoners and they're writers is that they would actually sit there and they just write it out in their heads. And they would say it over and over again because they'd be like, as soon as I get out of here, I can actually commit this to paper because I don't have a fucking piece of paper, mm. right? And it's exactly how I feel where it's, well, obviously, I have way more privilege than that, but I, a, lot, a lot of times if I don't have somewhere to write it down, I'm plagued for the rest of the day thinking, how can I get this? Oh, I got to get this out. Someone's got to read it, you know? Yeah, so that's, it's, it's. And I'm sure that you probably feel the same way. Is that like with, with writers, it feels like if it doesn't come out, like where is it going to go? You know? I feel like I want to ask a follow-up question. I, I don't want to take questions away from others. But the quick question or follow-up question to that is, so when you finally do write it out, do you have to go back and edit multiple times? Yeah, especially if you're getting a lot of feedback from folks, right? So... Yeah, I'm most often, very occasionally, there'll be like a chunk of 500 or 1,000 words that stays exactly as it always was, but most of the time, lots of rewriting. Yeah. yeah. I try to just write, just let it go, just the way that it is. If, if I'm allowing my ancestors to speak, I really can only hear the clack of my fingers against the keyboard, and it's just coming out. And you know when it's... It, it's it, you're in sort of the river of it all when all you're hearing is the clack, clack, clack of your keys. And 
then I go back and then I can edit it. But I, I try not to edit myself too much in the first round. Just let it gut out, you know, like just let it go. Mm. Yeah. Could I cool. ask a question? Yeah. Um, I'm curious if writing fiction is different for you than theater work or even the film stuff where you're like so in collaboration automatically does this feel different or oh well one thing that's um so in television is that okay so there's a lot of money and so it means (laughs) that there's a lot of people that are thinking that because they have the money that they have control over what you're trying to express right so you have to the one practice that i found so strange was that instead of writing a script they want you to write what's called an outline first. So I'm going to describe in prose what the dialogue is going to say. Uh. And just and also describe what's going to happen in the scene in great detail to the point where it feels You say like this like it's weird. It's, <laughs> it, I find it very odd because I'm like, I actually don't know what these characters are going to say until they start speaking to each other. So why am I describing it in prose? It, it is, to me, I, I find it, huh. it's kind of anathema to being creative. Like, I feel like, because I, I, I really do feel like when I have my computer there, that the characters are just beyond my laptop and they're talking to each other and I'm just the court stenographer. Oh. So how can I have that court stenographer feel if I'm writing it as a prose? So it, I've had to sort of, I've had to sort of retrain myself to do it. And I kind of have to cheat because I do have to do the court stenographer thing and then I have to go back and then write it in prose because that's what television wants. I, I find it odd. I, I, I don't like it. But but I but for theater, oh I, I love the idea of just the, the characters are talking and I'm just gonna write it down, just commit it to paper. I really love that. The long hours in theater are hard, but I the solitude I do like the solitude of writing in your pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Whereas you have to get dressed up and you have to well, you're not dressed up in theater, but like you have to see people. Mm-hmm. And you have to like... And there's nothing that actors say after 2 o'clock that should be written down. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my belief. I just feel like that this re- rehearsal cannot go anywhere past 2. None, nothing that we uh, accomplish after 2 o'clock is going to be savable. Like just like <laughs> leave it, let it go. Because I just don't, I think people are so tired. And then it gets a really... The art that you make after 2 o'clock in the afternoon is just awful. I don't want to. I don't want to listen to that. Uh, I, 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 miss and I don't like her. Like I miss it and I don't like it. I, I, rehearsal's hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. We have time for one more. Please tell me your name and then ask the question. Gabriela, go ahead. Gabriela, thank you. I don't really have a question. More than 
something that I want to do and, and, and find connection that's very important, core value in my life. I want to connect with people. I don't think I can provide it. I'm not as much as the wind in here. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So Gabriella's question, first of all, thank you. Thank you, that was lovely. The question is, how did you know you wanted to be a writer? Well, uh, yeah, so um, as mentioned, it was like since I was a kid. So my, my mom was a, a pioneer of Filipino folk education here in Canada. And she taught us that when you have your, when you keep your stories inside of you, it doesn't matter where you are in the diaspora, th that home was inside of you. So I understood that. It's the storytelling was really important at that time. It was, took the form of like dance and song, pictures, like you know that sort of thing. Then I started getting into write, writing plays and stuff. But I always I just understood that storytelling was important, and that I couldn't stop telling stories. And and that's it. It's just like I just understood that there were stories, and that I and then I was the person to tell. And then also I understood that people wanted to tell me their stories as well. So it was like as if the universe is saying, I need you to weave this together. You know, and um, and it happened ever since I was a child. People who were adults would tell me their life story. Could you imagine telling your life story to like a five-year-old? That was me. Ever since I was a kid, people like saying everything about what has happened to them in their lives. So I knew that I was the person to keep it, and I was a person to tell it. Yeah. What about you? That's such a beautiful answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> also, my mom. My mom is a writer. Um, <gasps> yeah. Also, somebody who's very like. Uh, believes everybody has a story and is trying to like elicit people's stories from them all the time. Um, so mm -hmm. I think watching her do that made me want to do it too. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Your mother is a source of inspiration. Thank that you. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I would like us to thank very much both Catherine and Eva for this wonderful Q&A discussion with us this afternoon here at the book fair. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lenny. <laughs> you can again follow Eva at Eva Lazy, Lazy Vegas <laughs> and at Catherine at Legs Hernandez and also of course the podcast at Getting Lit with Linda. This podcast will be produced and disseminated in another week or so so you'll be able to hear it again if you so wish thank you as always for joining us and thank you for joining us in particular for this episode of getting lit with linda thank you very much and that was my interview with Catherine hernandez and eva crocker please look out for our next episode airing on december 1st an interview with Erin Wonker about her book, Notes from a Feminist Killjoy. Thanks as always for listening, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.